Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Zipcar. Earn $25 of free driving credit at joinzipcar.com slash weekend. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about 2016. The year so far has given us a lot to play, read, watch, and think about, and we thought we'd focus on the positives, on sort of our favorite games and possibly even some of our favorite shows of 2016 so far. So Rob, why don't you take it from there? Why don't you tell me something that has been just one of your absolute favorites so far in 2016? Well, um... There's this game called The Witcher. Uh, I don't know. No. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up on your side uh, talking about the expansions. But, you know, you know, for me, like, I was sort of looking back really selfishly at, like, we're doing this topic, I think, to sort of hold ourselves accountable come, like, December when we're talking about, like, the good games that came out this year. Because, like, you never remember uh, like February and March. The first you just half. don't. Yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah. It just is straight out. And I'm sort of looking back through uh, what's come out this year. And it's interesting because I think for me, a lot of my standouts are strategy games, which isn't a surprise given that, like, you know, I do three moves ahead kind of your and thing. everything. Yeah. But it's, it's reassuring <laughs> to know that, like, you're still all in on the thing you're passionate about, right? Because yeah. like day to day, it can be easy to lose track of of whether or not you're still you're still feeling it as much as you were. But it's nice to sort of hit like midway through the year and be like, oh yeah, my my favorite games were were all the things that they kind of should be, right? Yeah. Uh, so you know, I think really the first the first game that really stood out for me this year and and still does is a uh, homeworld homeworld deserts of Karak. Nice. Um. Which is just, I think, has actually risen in my estimation because since that came out, I have seen so many people try to do like an RTS on a budget um, and just make a complete hash of it. Like Homeworld Deserts of Karak makes easy makes makes some makes this look easy, yeah. but then you compare it to a lot of other RTSs uh, that that are have either come out or are coming out and. Homeworld like clearly stands uh, sort of head and shoulders above them. Uh, so I mean, like even though I don't think that game has probably gotten the multiplayer community it deserves, mm-hmm. um, you'll you know on a, on a weekday afternoon or evening, uh, that's very good. You're going to find empty lobbies, uh, which uh. is which suggests maybe sales haven't been great, which gets me a little bit down. But fortunately, it's not a game that really suffers from not being able to play multiplayer uh, because the campaign is, is absolutely worth the price of admission. It's still got uh, good characters and, and, and fun mission design and a beautiful sense of atmosphere. Uh, so really that, you know, it was one of my first, uh, you know, experiences of the year and it remains one of the best. And in the wake of things like ashes of the singularity, or I just previewed this game, um, Meridian Squad 22 mm. uh, for Rock, Paper, Shotgun. When you could, like, you see these other games trying to do, like, RTS without the big commitment. Sure. <laughs> uh, and Homeworld just really shows, like, shows you how it's done, right? If you, if you, if you don't have StarCraft money to make a campaign, 
uh, Homeworld Dungeons of Karak is is, is should be should be the example to follow. I, I'm trying to think of a good transition from there, yeah. but I don't think I you have absolutely one. Don't sadly, have, you, yeah, no worries. <laughs> I want to be like, well, in my homeworld, I what? But that was awful. That would have been oh god, yep. just hearing that. See, oh. aren't you glad I didn't? But I did. Yeah, I'm kind of glad. <laughs> well, my early part of the year, you know, I, I you know have been reflecting on sort of the early part of the year as you were. Um, and there were a couple of games that really sort of dominated for me my sort of, you know, late January and February. And those were Firewatch and The Witness. And I'll, I'll talk about The Witness first because I also hated it. Um, but the sheer amount of time I put into that game, I feel I feel like something had to be there for me to, to get as far as I did in it. And for me to, you know, kind of bust my own butt to, to keep with it and stay with it. And I think maybe I admire parts of that game more than I actually enjoyed it or liked it. I think that maybe the sort of purity of the puzzle design, at least the puzzles that weren't an absolute nightmare. And I don't mean in terms of difficulty. I mean, in terms of, you know, fiddling with the camera to get it to the perfect angle and, and things mm -hmm. that didn't feel like they were well taught. That stuff continues to bother me. It bothered me when I was playing it. I still think it really is kind of a tarnish on the game. But when the game is being what I, I think of as 80% of the witness, being an actually very, very pure sort of puzzle-solving experience, teaching you the sort of language of, of its gameplay, that's when that game was awesome and, and had something to teach us and was a just very, very pure experience. And I wanted to mention quickly that a friend of mine actually made a demake of The Witness called Wit.NES, and you can just go search for that. It's on Itch.io, actually. Just a free little downloadable 8-bit version of The Witness that's just purely puzzles, and it's awesome. None of the sad bullshit statues, none of the weird objectivist kind of shitty worldview, none of the puzzles that make no sense and aren't taught well. It's just good Witness puzzles, and I feel like that's almost the better version. Are they of taken the from the game, or are they? Are they they're sort of, uh, they're sort of inspired by the game. Okay. You know, it, it's it's just tracing lines. You know, just mm -hmm. like you do, sort of in the in the game proper. But it's you know, it, it's all very nicely put together and pretty and cute and uh, you know, just like an even more pure version of that experience. That I think purity is the sort of reason to play it anyway. So that's a cool thing. And the other one that I, you know, played, and actually one of the few games, I, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the few games I've actually beaten this year. <laughs> you know, I certainly go in and I beat any game that I'm reviewing, uh, unless I'm doing sort of review impressions, which I, I always sort of state on there, so no gotchas, please. Uh, it was Firewatch, and I feel kind of like a, a, a tool, uh, because, you know, I have a friend of mine made Wit.NES, and obviously friends of ours and the producer of this podcast uh, made Firewatch, but I, I really loved Firewatch, and I know some people had some some issues with it. Um, you know, particularly sort of the 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 denouement of the game and the sort of you know peak of action, and maybe the the sort of core mystery in the game didn't work for them. But I I really really enjoyed it, and more than anything, I enjoyed the writing and the characters and. Also, being in that space, I'm, I'm kind of an outdoor girl. I like to be outside. I like to hike. I like to be in nature. I like to go to national parks. My idea of a perfect vacation is not to go to, 
you know, a place that has really awesome food. Sorry, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, but it is to like go to a national park and hike and bike and kayak and get exhausted and sweaty and disgusting and just enjoy every second of it. That's sort of my idea of heaven. Um, so the idea of sort of like escaping your life into this kind of world, which is exactly what the protagonist does, uh, really kind of resonated with me. You know, I don't have a spouse who's going through early dementia or anything like that, but I, <laughs> that aspect of it really, really resonated with me. So yeah, that's probably going to be on my end of year list as, as one of my favorite games of the year. Unless of course there are 10 other games that blow yeah. me away too much more that it would, you know, kind of do that. But I can't really see another game kind of affecting me. I, I certainly can. I can see another game affecting me personally, but I, I don't know if anything's going to really scratch that itch, that kind of desire to be outdoors and be in nature to kind of escape personal problems. That that feels like something Firewatch did pretty uniquely. So we'll see on that one. Yeah, when I saw you put that on the list, I, I sort of reflected on whether I'd just forgotten it and like whether I should put it on my list or anything like that. And I don't know. It's it's an it's an odd thing. It's a game that made an impression on me, mm-hmm. and I, like I find myself thinking about it at odd times. But for some reason, I guess like you know because I identified with a, a, a lot of that as well. Sort of the the allure of um, you know you're, you're this character that's it's just become all too much yeah. and does the thing that I think we've all thought about doing yeah. at one point or another, which is basically just you know to borrow a phrase from my brother, my brother and me, uh, <laughs> pack your bags and get out of town. Yep, uh, just just vanish basically and just walk out of your life completely. Uh, and and go be a play go be in a place where like nobody knows you and and nobody can bother you, um, and that is that is very appealing, um, and it is such a beautifully evocative game, yeah, uh, like that that really can't be understated, especially as uh, I love how the the color palette of the game, uh kind of gets like warmer and then like yeah. hotter and more menacing as yeah. as the game continues. Um I, I sort of enjoy that that evolution and from the forest as like a, a, a sort of retreat and place of peace uh to to something a little more uh you know pardon the pun but like a little more heated, right? A <laughs> sure. little more um a, a little more uh, panic inducing. But I do think like I, I am still I'm still left with that that feeling that I just I I feel like so many things there is so much good setup in that game. Yeah. That turns out to be misdirection. Right? And it's and I think that's kind of my frustration is and it's it's maybe even a little annoying because there are so many different games that it could have been. Sure. And Firewatch sort of faints toward a bunch of them. And what it turns out to be is something uh, maybe much more realistic, right? Like, uh, you know, what's that? Like, like, there's a quote I see sometimes uh, that you know, uh, you know, your, your life is not a narrative. Uh, you're right. not the hero of your own story. Right. Um. You, you know, it's just like it just happens. Uh. The the life the life doesn't follow any sort of grand plan or grand narrative design. That's just something we impose onto it. And so I, I admire that Firewatch kind of commits to this idea that all this stuff happens. And in the end, uh, 
Nothing's really changed for Henry. Yeah. Unless you feel it has. You know what I mean? Like that. Yes. It, but this is, it is completely a sequence of events that may or may not have any meaning, but it certainly doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. You're just going to have to ascribe it yourself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I admire that. But at the same time, as I was playing that game, uh, I, I had the sense of like frustration that there were so many. There's so many ideas and possibilities that kind of go unexplored in this game. Uh, and that I'm not sure, like, it, you know, it's kind of petty, but I'm not sure I ever quite forgave the game for that. <laughs> no, I think that's fair enough. I, you know, I, I didn't love the sort of central mystery in it. I didn't love that. I sort of recognized its utility in making me never want to drop the controller and making me just plow forward, uh, you know, into the wee hours of the night, so to speak. And never want to stop, and and you know there there's utility in that. I get it. You you need to keep the player playing yeah. the game. Um, I didn't think that held up to sort of scrutiny afterwards. Uh, uh, which which aspect of it? The, the sort of the conspiracy theory aspect. Yes. Okay. You know that part. So didn't, the entire paranoid thriller aspect. Yeah, that kind of. Yes. You know, I didn't I didn't hate it when I was playing it. I was I was fine with it when I was playing it, and sort of later on, I was kind of like, well, eh, that didn't quite. Mm, didn't quite sit a hundred percent with me, um, but I, but I loved the part of it where things feel unresolved, and I loved the part where it was like, no, no, fuck you, you're not getting your romance novel ending kind of thing. I, I loved, I loved the last five minutes of that game. I felt were were perfect, at least in my opinion. You know, it for me for the sort of thing I was playing along in my head and. I, I liked how that recontextualized the whole thing of, of thinking like, oh, you know, we're leading up to something, we're leading up to something. Uh, nope. Go back to your life, dude, because the answers aren't in the woods. It was, I, I just love that. I love that slap in the face. Maybe I'm a, a masochistic person, but I, I thought that was great, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, like, I think I probably need to play it again, right? Because my first, like, clearly as I talk about it, my impressions are completely informed by the fact I had no idea where it was headed. Sure. Yeah. And so I started building out versions of the game in my head that weren't the game I was playing. Yeah. And so I'm still sort of caught on that uh, disillusionment, I guess. And But as I talk about it, I'm like, well, shit, that's kind of, there's a lot that I that I, that I admire <laughs> about this approach to storytelling. Yeah. I just maybe need to go back and accept, like, for instance, I need to go back and, like, appreciate the comedy of the scene where he uncut, where they uncovered the uh, mysterious scientific research station yeah. that appears to be spying on them. <laughs> uh, that a scene that in retrospect becomes pretty hilarious. Yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, so I, I think Firewatch definitely uh, will be worth discussing again uh, at the at the end of this year, if only to uh, to sort of compare, like because obviously good things have to be pitted against each other in a good thing deathmatch uh, yes. at the end of the year. Oh yes, um, I'm like I'm, I'm very sorry, but there's only so much goodness we can recognize in <laughs> December, and uh, everything else can just you know sit and spin. It has been decreed. Uh, so. I think games that have uh, really jumped out at me of late. So yeah, I, th I, I think I have to give a nod to uh, to Total War Warhammer. All right. Um, even though, like, it's it's interesting because there, it, it, like, I still feel that there's like half of an amazing game there. And then it kind of trails off. Like, I really feel like every that campaign, no matter who you're playing, I think kind of forgets what makes the opening appealing. 
and eventually it becomes this really sort of procedural rote uh, kind of slog. And I have tended to lose interest in campaigns when that starts to happen. But those early stages, when you are in this like Warhammer world, and you are just fighting for your life against all these really, really like well presented uh, like Warhammer fantasy enemies, uh, really makes it all feel like it's it, like it's come to life. Uh, you know, I was I was going through. It, sometimes it's a cool thing, right, to go through like as you're sort of putting. Is just sort of winding down a game, like review process or whatever. You sort yeah. of go through your screenshots folder and uh, just start leafing through it. It's almost like it's like going through your old snapshot. Totally, right? you're not going <laughs> to keep everything. Uh, but but you know, I was I was going through the folder and I was seeing all these like amazing images of like uh, you know human cavalry charging uh, at the like legs of a huge ogre, uh, for instance. <laughs> and like the next frame shows like a horseman being just like blasted like you know blasted like a fastball uh out of right field almost just you know just that just that ogre just hammering something yeah. um or like just like you know battles and driving snowstorms in the mountains with like all the the you know the 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 dwarven city in the background with like huge carved mountainsides and sculptures uh everything everything just feels so good in, in that game. That's not an easy thing, I think, for especially for strategy games to do. A lot of them uh, can sometimes feel like you're just dealing with piles, like you, you're just dealing with like skins wrapped around piles of numbers. Sure, yeah. And this doesn't fall into that trap. This is This is a game that's like, Really going out of its way to sort of convince you that like no this is this is absolutely like this epic fantasy battle uh, with these like m- like crazy magical creatures uh, that are completely like mismatched and unbalanced but somehow you're gonna have to make it work right like somehow you're somehow your little crossbowmen are gonna have to you know <laughs> gonna have to pucker up <laughs> and uh, face down this giant spider and uh, you know we'll see how it goes. And and so I I really like even though I have some big problems with how that ends up playing out as a strategy game in the long haul, um, in terms of like the memories it generates and how many like sort of white knuckle uh, nail biter battles it, it sort of generates, um, Total War Warhammer just it remains one of my favorite strategy experiences uh, of this year and and probably one of my Probably one of my favorite Total Warhammer, uh, sorry, one of my favorite Total War experiences uh, in, in quite some time. I'm not sure if it tops uh, the the excellent Attila, but it's uh, it's definitely something that I'll want to revisit at the end of the year to think about uh, how it holds up and how it's evolved uh, as as a strategy game. One of these days, I'm going to have to have you sit me down and give me a little lesson in in strategy games because I I feel like some part of me is primed to actually get strategy, but I, I don't play very many of the games. You, and well, You played Rise of Nations, though. Oh, a ton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like the one that I've played, honestly. Like, it's like the one strategy game that I've played ever. Yeah, but, but it's also like one of the more... Like, I, yeah. I feel like if you played that, you probably get it. It's just a matter of, like, you have, finding the time for them, right? Sure, like, sure. Yeah. But, yeah, no, absolutely happy to, uh, to evangelize uh, some, of the, some of these to you. One of these days... We're going to make that happen. 
should do that on a stream or something. But yeah. Yeah. Um, here's my biggest surprise of the year uh, so far um, has been. So the next sort of, you know, couple of games on the list, I'll, I'll kind of talk about one of them very briefly and then, then you know, kind of tie it in. But they're first person shooters. And this is mm-hmm. funny to me because I am maybe the world's worst um, first-person shooter player. Like, I, you should see me aim. It's horrific. It's it's sad. It's truly sad. Uh, I just don't play a ton of FPSs. Not not seriously, you know, pretty much never competitively. Um, I really enjoyed Superhot this year. I, mm-hmm. I know it's almost, the game is so so short that it was almost kind of a teaser for more things that they're going to do with Superhot. So I, I kind of am excited for what else they're going to do with that game. I know they're going to do some VR stuff. They're going to do other things with that game. So I, I kind of put that on my list as like a, hey, that was really cool. It's a really cool concept. You know, the, the sort of time bending, you know, it actually feels kind of like a puzzle and it feels very much like an actual, like mm-hmm. like a real innovation on, on you know, a, a core kind of game design paradigm that, you know, is in many, many, many games, you know, clearly. But it, it really felt like, okay, this is actually thinking about what makes this stuff tick and what makes it work. And it was yeah. really fun. Love the style. Love the kind of cyberpunk fun story. Um, but yeah, the, the sort of main two uh, games that are sort of left on my list are Overwatch and Doom. Two mm-hmm. first-person shooters that have come out, you know, fairly recently that I utterly adored. Like, really had no desire to play them whatsoever, either of them, honestly. You know, I thought Overwatch looked cute, but I was like, oh, it's a Blizzard game. It's a, you know, first-person shooter. There's MOBA stuff in there, and I know... You know, neither of those are my genre. You know, neither of those are the things that I get excited about. And here I am, you know, months later, still playing it, still loving it, still kind of sucking at it, but not even caring because it's just so goddamn fun. And we've we've probably talked that to death, so I, I won't go too too far into it other than to say it's just a really warm and kind of inclusive and fun and colorful yeah. team-based game that is just a real pleasure to play. Have you have you found the type of thing you do in the game has changed? Like, are you playing more roles now that you've had more time in the game? Or are you still pretty support-focused? I'm still rocking Zarya pretty hard. Okay. Like, and she's she's kind of the only one I'm I'm not garbage with. So I'm I'm leaning in <laughs> to that a little bit, but I still you know I still mess around every now and then. I feel like I've had some fun with the uh, with Lucio. I've had a little bit of luck with him, um, and hilariously, I've I've been playing a little bit of McCree. Uh, just because I don't I know. Occasionally, occasionally I I have fun just shooting things poorly. So I there's just that. Feel so like every time, <laughs> every time that ultimate is up, I just like. It's, it's like that far side cartoon with the dude with the symbols. Oh yeah, uh, being like, "Don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up." And the caption is like, "Sydney screws up." Yeah, uh, that's me with McCree. <laughs> like every time that ultimate is about to about to be up, I'm like, "Okay, don't fuck this up. <laughs> Just step out there. Like, take a good scan. Don't panic. Don't move too slow. Don't 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 move too fast. And uh, just let, let those let those locks get acquired." <laughs> It's and like alien isolation time, almost. Like Yeah, yeah. And every time it's just like I step out, immediately freak out, maybe lock up, maybe see like one person, you know, like and and that's it basically. Like I, I like I completely whiff. Yeah, it's all done. No, I, I understand. I'm not good with McCree, believe me. <laughs> I'm no good at all. But it's fun every now and then to be Mr. Goofy Cowboy. Yeah. 
Um, which is honestly the reason I play that game. You get to be these goofy, funky little characters and it's, it's fun. Like I, I, I still, I don't care that I suck so bad at the game. As long as, you know, nobody else on my team is going to hate me for yeah. life, which they won't because I'm not playing in any kind of competitive <laughs> capacity, really. Um, yeah, I, as long as I'm just sort of going in and having fun and relaxing, it's, it's kind of all good. I, it's kind of my go-to for something to play when I just need to kind of chill right now, which is, a good thing I have, and and of course there's Doom, which surprised the hell out of me. And again, we've we've talked about this, you know, so so much. So I'll, I will only briefly say I just love that game for how comfortable it is in its own skin, being a goofy, weird video game ass video game. Proud to be it, uh, and a shooter that I can play as basically first person melee, which I'm a lot better at. <laughs> <laughs> and and just enjoy myself and be wacky and and kill demons in the face and it's it, it's just a great time. It's just a simple, fun, goofy kind of good time and I I'm still just totally down for that. In a weird way, I feel like with both both Super Hot and Doom do to an extent is, is that they almost seem to like deconstruct shooters yeah, a little bit. Totally. Because like I, I think Doom actually also has a sort of stop start uh pacing to it sure. that is kind of unusual because of all those melee kills that sort of force the action to slow down and hit the you, you sort of get to pump the brakes on the action uh every every few seconds in a big in a big battle. And I think that ends up being like A, actually a little more comfortable than like older shooters where you constantly had to just be running and gunning and like sort of spinning in circles and landing all these skill shots. Uh, But the other thing is it sort of lets you enjoy the action of a shooter a little more, right? Because you're playing, like, I feel like (laughs) they're like mindful shooters almost. You're like, you're a little more conscious of what you're doing and a little more conscious of like how you're moving through a level and, and what your routes are. And that's all stuff that like maybe happens intuitively in other shooters. But if it's happening intuitively, uh, sometimes that can feel really good because it, it, it sort of it just feels like all effortless and like very flowy. Uh, but it, sometimes it also just it, it sort of denies you the pleasure of appreciating your own skill. Right? Yeah. And I feel Doom is very good at letting you sort of congratulate yourself on your cleverness for like, wow, I really got out of that corner and, you know, <laughs> killed the, killed the crap out of these guys. Yes. Uh, so I, yeah, I really admire, uh, what, what doom sort of, sort of does with the, uh, with, with the, with the conventions of the genre. Uh, speaking of conventions of genre. Yeah. Uh, I am probably a little premature on this cause I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't played too much of it yet. Uh, but I am shocked how much I'm enjoying Uncharted 4. Yes. As a, it is not surprising in a lot of ways, but it is serving me up exactly what I've come to expect and hope for from Naughty Dog Games, yeah. which is just some of the uh, best writing, best acting, and best like thought out uh, like set pieces that I'll find in the game. Yeah, that game is is fantastic. I've I've been playing it kind of on and off myself and god, I just love that it, it it's the most beautiful damn kind of tomb raidery game ever and I yeah. I'm having so much fun. You know, 
the story is great. It's it's awesome. The acting is is and the pacing and the writing, as you're saying, are, are very mature and they they feel like a movie made for grown-ups, which is not always something you get in games, but I, I'm playing this kind of like a kid. Like I'm like, oh, I can climb on that thing. I can run over there. I can kind of do all this stuff. Like I, I'm actually having fun sort of treating it like a really pretty playground, and I like that the game supports that as well. <laughs> yeah, I um I did, you know, I I'm surprised how much I have been cool with the fact they kind of retcon a Drake brother. Oh in yeah, that story. As well. <laughs> I was I was I was okay. So I think part of it is I'm also just really relieved uh, that this isn't a disaster. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because <laughs> I was very worried that losing uh, Amy Hennig. Yeah. Uh, is it Henning or Hennig? I think it's Hennig, right? Yeah, I think it's Henning. I think Hennig. I was very concerned uh, that the departure of Amy Hennig would kind of spell doom for Uncharted for me, right? Because, sure. like, I think one of the things that sort of distinguished that series very very early on was uh, a quality of writing and and b the fact that like you had strong female characters. Yeah. Uh, that weren't just there as like romantic objects, uh, and I, I would say especially as the series went on, uh, they, they sort of grew beyond that. Uh, I will say that I think Uncharted Four is recognizably a, a Druckmann story, <laughs> sure, <laughs> um, and in weird ways is actually a little bit of a companion to um, to Last of Us. I can see that, yeah, because I I feel like there's a lot of both those games actually have a lot of like white working class or middle class anxieties uh, sort of baked into them. And I think like, cause, cause I mean, that's totally the setup for uncharted four, right? Oh, like totally. ostensibly the action is like, Oh man, your brother's come back and you know, he's got some, he's got, he's, he's got some bad stuff in his past. That's catching up to him and you gotta, you gotta help him. Uh, but, but really the crisis for Nathan Drake, right. Is, is that he's, he's living that quiet, that life of quiet desperation. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. Cause it is making a character that was a complete, like, matinee type character like just an adventure hero Mm. uh suddenly like you're taking that fish out of water and locating it in the real world but i think that's actually done to really good effect uh in in this game i'm I'm surprised how much i'm how much i'm liking it right because i didn't need another story where nathan drake was just kind of wise cracking like clipping (laughs) his way around the world i really like that it sort of opens with like this guy who we've seen doing all this cool shit for these other games is suddenly just like working on a salvage crew and just like getting yelled at by, yep. <laughs> you know, yelled at by the police. Like, you know, get your, get your crew out of here. We gotta, we gotta move. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's getting underbid on, 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 on shitty contracts. Um, I, I just, I really, I am surprised how much, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying having, uh, the characters of like Drake and Elena sort of brought down to earth. Yeah. That game is awesome. I, I need to finish it myself uh, still <laughs> at this point. But yeah, I, I agree completely. I'm going to just make one quick mention of a game I have not played yet, but I think it could be potentially on my list. And that is Hyper Light Drifter. Um, it just sort of came out at a time where there were like three Dark Souls likes, basically. And it's not a Dark Souls game at all, but it does sort of take that a little bit of that inspiration of it's really hard and the bosses are really tough. And, you know, you, but 
unlike Dark Souls, there's no kind of huge loading time in between and you kind of get to jump right back in. It's it's a game that I have not yet played, even though it, by virtue of my position, I have watched like 20 hours of mm-hmm. footage from it because I've, you know, cut those, uh, you know, boss guides and, and things like that from it. So I, I, I feel confident in saying I think I would like this game to the point even where I might like it enough for it to be on my list. So it, it has a sort of temporary spot right now. It's kind of the grayed out <laughs> version on, yeah. on my spot right now, but I, I do think it it might it might be there. It might be one of those. Any games you're surprised didn't make your list? <sighs> you know, I thought about putting Dark Souls on there because of the, ver- you know, again, by virtue yeah. of just how much damn time I spent. I, yeah. I was obviously, <laughs> we've been over it a few times, yeah. but I I liked it despite how much I hated it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that's the thing. I'm sort of surprised it didn't make the list, yeah. right? Because you know you you hate fuck something for months at a time on the reg, and like, sorry, that's a relationship. It is a relationship. It's a relationship where you know, are you calling them when you're a little drunk on Saturday night? Are you saying yeah. hey, or are you like, man, fuck that game? <laughs> yeah. It's weird. I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm kind of like, I'm glad I played what I played, you know, 57 hours or maybe even more like 60 hours. Glad I had that experience, but I do not want to see it again. It's one of those. Like, with Bloodborne, I definitely would see it again. If Bloodborne were coming to town, we would have drinks, we would have coffee, we we would talk at least. Right. We might end up getting a hotel. That's fine. Yeah. Maybe, you know, for one night. Dark Souls, I'm kind of like... New I, phone. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, new phone who dis. Like, <laughs> that yeah. might be what happens with it. And I just think that comes down to Bloodborne being a little bit more... I guess you could say accessible, but maybe just a little bit more my style. A little but bit more. When, like, it rewards aggression. <laughs> What's that? Sorry. But Witness did make your list. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Witness and I would have coffee and then go to the bathroom. Like, and oh. yeah, oh. I know I have a real problem. Oh, wow. I have a real witness problem. I, yeah, I think it's probably that's, obvious. That's not great. Yeah, I know. But I guess. Yeah, okay. <sighs> sure. Yep. Um, <laughs> I love I think, how I've contextualized this in a really yeah. special way here. Yeah. And like, yeah. I'm guessing like, I guess, I guess the next question is like, what kind of place are you at with the witness? You know, like what kind of bathroom were we talking about, right? Like, I mean, it's a nice like, restaurant at the very okay. least. There's a candle in that bathroom. Okay, okay. we're not it's talking not, about it's not like Burger King. On Boylston right, or something. right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's not, it's like, it's, there's a candle. Just like bracing yourself on a shaky, like, <laughs> it's like wall. you might die. You know, if you yeah. if you make the wrong choices there. Yeah. No, it, we would go to the bathroom and then I would slap it in the face after. It, okay. It's more tumultuous. Dark Souls, I'm still kind of like, I, I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not here. I went to New York. I don't. Well, I live in New York, but you know what I mean? I went yeah. to I went into Manhattan. I'm not here. I don't know where you are. Um, <laughs> I think for me, a game that I'm surprised didn't click with me more. Though I shouldn't be surprised at all. I was really hoping I would fall in love with Stellaris. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, shit. No, forget that. <laughs> XCOM 2 is the game I'm surprised. Oh, uh, like, yes. That was, came out this year. Shit, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> XCOM 2, I think, I, I need to give it another shot. Sure. Uh, I, I know that people who are really good at squad tactics games, who I respect, like... 
put their time into it and figured like as, as my buddy Sean Sands put it um because he, he did a 180 on that game he didn't mm. like it and then he fell in love with it and I asked him like you know how could you leave me like this <laughs> like leave me alone and, and not liking <laughs> XCOM 2 very much and he was like I was right where you're at but then XCOM 2 whispered its secrets to me <laughs> And uh, and I was lost. And I kind of hope to go back and have that moment, right? I kind of, I kind of want, I, I'm like, I want to give that game one more chance to seduce me, yeah. Um, and and sort of, you know, whisper sweet nothings into my ear. But I, I, I am surprised how how much that game wasn't what I wanted out of an XCOM sequel. Sure. Um, really, I just, I wanted a better, like, more coherent campaign. Uh, and I feel like they made a tougher tactics game, which isn't a bad thing. And, like, again, Random Levels was was a huge addition. Uh, but I feel like they both kind of jacked up the difficulty curve of the overall campaign. Yeah. Uh and then at the same time created a campaign whose structure doesn't really make a lot of um like intuitive uh you know sense at, at first glance nor does it nor does it actually make a lot of sense if you think about it after you figure out how it works <laughs> sure uh it still doesn't really it still doesn't really work on on either level i don't think uh so I, that that i think is probably my biggest surprise of this year is just uh that xcom 2 uh, a game that I had been so up for 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 years, ever since ex- since the since the the first game came out, um, ended up being one of my surprising misses uh, of the year. It's always weird when that happens. Yeah, um, I, I, I seriously, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh god, that game came out this year. Yeah. I remember editing a review for it and never yeah. hearing another word about it again, and kind of being like, oh yeah, I guess that. I'll tell you, I started to feel thing. a lot better because we because that was one of the first. Um, there were a lot of people who were not happy after we did the three moves ahead on it. And sure. it's not a positive <laughs> episode in a lot of ways. Uh, but I kind of felt a little bit gratified at how quickly like people who would profess to like completely be head over heels with that game kind of stopped talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and maybe that's like churlish. Cause most people, you know, most people are in our line of work, right? We all move on to things. We all like play a thing and then move on. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely felt like, you know, the original, like not the original XCOM, but I hate the way we have to talk. I know. I- XCOM <laughs> enemy unknown yeah. from a few years ago. Uh, that was a thing that was talked about throughout that year and the next oh, really yeah. like that just became like the go-to reference for like squad tactics, uh, turn-based games. Uh, that was just, everyone was into that. Everyone had lots to say. Everyone was still like high on it months and months later. Uh, here it was like, it was a very short honeymoon period, and then I kind of feel like within a few weeks you saw how much it had really clicked with people as opposed to how much people, like, read their expectations and their first reactions. Yeah. God, there's so much of that in our industry, too. So, <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of a common problem. Yeah. So, Rob, I wanted to briefly ask you, since we're, since we're doing kind of our favorites of the year so far, other than the Americans, did you mm. have a favorite TV series so far in 2016? Uh, I did. Yeah. The show I would cite for the thing that gave me the most enjoyment uh, was uh, American Crime Story, uh, The Trial of O.J. Simpson. Fantastic. Uh, That was, that was, every episode was just an absolute treat uh, to to me, and I loved how, it was kind of everything a miniseries should be. It it almost felt like, um, 
You know, like how if you ever watch like Band of Brothers, oh, yeah. um, a lot of the episodes actually have a very different style to them. They focus on very different things. Um, this was kind of similar in that while the through line of the trial was sort of gave the thing or its, its structure, um, there were a lot of times where the the perspective really shifted to one character or another or one group of people or one issue. Uh, and I really enjoyed just how it turned into this. Uh, it, it gave me this feeling of looking at the same events from all these different perspectives. The, the episode that really jumped out at me, actually, uh, if I had to cite, there's two episodes I would cite uh, as as being uh, truly, truly spectacular. Uh, one was an episode called Marsha, 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 mm. uh, which was, as you might expect, just a study of Marsha Clark. And what it was like to be a smart, ambitious, uh, you know, promising uh, district attorney mm. and finding yourself at the center of this, like, complete media shitstorm. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and that was kind of a heartbreaking episode. It sort of covered her, like, uh, sense of isolation um, and, and anger and sexism directed at her. Uh, so that was a great episode. And then another episode that, that stood out was um, called A Jury in Jail, which was really just about uh, the, the the jurors of the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, yeah. all 30 or 30 or 40 of them, yeah. uh, and, and what it was like being in this weird uh, sequestration for like six months and the, the racial and personal tensions within that jury – uh, and the way they sort of were looking at the same events, uh, it was it was a complete departure from the rest of the series in a lot of ways because you were basically it was a show about the extras. Yeah. Uh, but it was a great episode of television, and I really really enjoyed the uh, series as a whole. God, I can't I can't wait to actually dive in. My my girlfriend and I are watching Scream right now, hilariously, and I I'm kind of like, all right, the next one has to be serious. We're watching the OJ show after this, and we're yeah, yeah it's one of those. Um, for my part, uh, I think the Expanse has to be my oh, my shit. favorite. The Expanse, yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, it was it's partially 2015. It was December 2015 into no, it, it's more uh, February. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. it counts because it, it goes into February uh, <laughs> of this year, and. God, it's been so long since you know uh, a sci-fi show. You know, I I will probably watch most sci-fi even if it's utter trash because sci-fi right. is just my thing it's what i love i love the idea of you know sort of wider possibilities and and space and dorky shit uh but this is one of those sort of very few sci-fi series that's really really good really well written with with great characters and a point and a lot of you know just just a lot of sort of meat on the bones so to speak you know you can you can appreciate it completely from just it's an enjoyable exciting series in space it also, you know, has a diverse cast, which is awesome. And it sort of, you know, says some things about a potential future and actually says some things about, you know, terrorism versus revolutionaries. And there's Mormons in space and there's a lot going on. And so we've good. we've we've yeah. dug into it, you know, sort of in the past. But uh, as with anything, whenever I kind of have dreams about something, I know it, it really took into my brain, yeah. so to speak. And I have a lot of the Americans' dreams. Uh, but, of course, we exempted the Americans because both of us were going to say the Americans. But so. you're having expanse dreams as well. I'm having expanse dreams as well. And 
I just find myself thinking about it every now and then. Oh, yeah. You know? no, um, I, yeah. I watched every episode at least twice, oh, uh, which yeah. was like, I'd like wait a few weeks. I didn't delete anything because I was like, nice. I am so starved for like decent sci-fi. Yes. That I was like, look, in three weeks here, I don't want to watch that episode again. So yeah. just, just hold your horses, buddy. Just keep it in uh, there. <laughs> and I mean, there were, there like, I think it got better uh, as it went on. It did. Uh, like, the fast ramp up it does toward the end of the season uh when all the plot lines begin to converge at this one uh like asteroid space station yeah uh was really really good there is some great uh tension building uh calm before the storm shootout moments in that in in those closing episodes um yeah i i i am so excited for for the next season yeah. and uh like really they just knocked it out of the park uh with production direction and casting yeah that's so good All right, so that's probably about all the halfway point of 2016 uh, that we're going to do today. So with that, I think it's time for us to handle our weekend correspondence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Rob, now that it's summer, I want to take a little road trip. I definitely have always wanted to see the great California coast, uh, but I have a little problem. I think hitchhiking might not be the safest thing. Well, if the movie Zodiac has taught me anything about <laughs> being out in the wilds of California, no, it's it's absolutely not. And remember, Ted Cruz is still out there. God, you're right. They have not built any bullet trains yet, much to my chagrin, and I definitely don't want to buy a car. I don't have the money for that. Well, you could always try Zipcar. They're convenient, easy to find and use, and flexible. And they have wheels when you need them in most cities. Okay, well that sounds pretty great. Just go to joinzipcar.com slash weekend and you'll get $25 of free driving credit. And you can have a car whenever you need one without any of the hassle. I can avoid scary drivers, Ted Cruz, and the Zodiac Killer all summer long. What's that URL again? That's joinzipcar.com slash weekend for $25 of free driving credit. Alrighty, so I think it's time for us to reach into our mailbag. Our first question comes from Alex in Los Angeles. Alex writes, Yeah, hi guys. As a lifelong gamer in my early 30s, recent releases of Doom and Overwatch have made me really happy. I feel like these two titles in particular have gotten to the core of what makes first-person shooters fun. This isn't nostalgia talking. Doom 2 has been a favorite of mine for as long as I can remember, and I think it's because it was a simple game designed around a new idea, a fast first-person shooter, and the design is focused on exploiting the core of that to make it fun. I don't mean to say that games since then have been bad or that developers haven't been working hard to create the best games they can. There's been a lot of ground to explore, with AAA titles pushing the boundaries of what is possible and indies focused on very specific gameplay elements. And now we've got games like the new Doom. It's a AAA game that is fully aware that is built around core gameplay and is improved with everything we've learned about quality of life and polish. Feels like these things are finally coming together, and I'm just so gosh darn happy. Alex in Los Angeles. I, th- I feel like I've already covered uh, how I feel about these two games sort of in our <laughs> first segment, which is funny, uh, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, this letter is somebody who totally gets it, too. Um, but yeah, just Alex gets it. And the Doom makers get it. Overwatch creators get it. And it's awesome to see when people get it. <laughs> I think there's I think I think there's a, a, a hypothesis of progress in this email mm. that I'm not entirely down with. 
or at least I'm not entirely convinced by, right? Like, I hope Alex is right. I hope that this is like developers are like, they've had, you know, they've had a good think and they've really figured out how to make really good games around uh, like simpler, like older ideas. I feel like we've seen two examples, like maybe just one example of that. Like, I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure Overwatch uh, really. I'm not sure Overwatch is as simple as it appears, right? Like, I I think the idea of Overwatch is kind of simple. I think the execution is is maybe a lot less simple. Um, And actually, I think when we talked about Doom, it's it's also a surprisingly uh, complicated game in some ways. But I I, but but I think like it's it's these are sort of two data points, Um, and I, I think we've been very lucky to have two games like that emerge this year. I'm not sure as a whole that like the triple A market is getting better at making games. I feel like we just had a few come up that are really, yeah, (laughs) a few few that have come up that are really good, but good in a way that makes us feel like they're recapturing what made games great in the first place. Sure. uh, Which is awesome. And like, I share that enthusiasm, uh, but and this is me. I'm a total pessimist. Like I am always like, you know, I'm always like, boy, today's, today's a really nice day. And then I will scan the horizon. like trying to find that, like, you know, that, that dark cloud yeah. uh, coming in. And, and so with this, I kind of feel like, I hope, I hope this reflects like uh, improving uh, creative direction and execution of, of, of game design, AAA studios. I suspect we're just having a really good spring and early summer. I appreciate that. I, I sort of, maybe I read a little too much uh, into Alex's email of my own perspective, which is that the developers are sort of embracing fun and embracing like joyful goofiness and, and colorfulness and things like that as well. Like that that kind of comes mm-hmm. along with, you know, the older design ethos of, of you know, the older Doom and, and elder yeah. games, basically. Um, and... I'm really hoping that's a trend that we're done with the sort of uh, grim, dark, you know, serious men shoot serious men uh, kind of stuff. We're not done, but at least that we've taken a turn in the industry, kind of more away from that and more into like, yeah, you know what's fun is shooting a demon. You know what's fun is being colorful and having pink hair and shooting people. You know that kind of thing. But I fully also uh, acknowledge that hey, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe we just got lucky. Maybe you're right. Yeah. So I'll be really curious to see. Um what we continue to see out of the uh, non-Fallout, uh, Elder Scrolls, Bethesda properties. Yes. Uh, oh, because yes. I do feel like they're on a weird roll right now. And, like, okay, it's only, again, limited data points, right? We're talking about, like, two games, <laughs> sure. basically. Like, boy, those old those old id properties they've arrived have been really good. They've been great. Uh, but I, I am kind of... Well, there's also hopeful. Dishonored. Um which, you know, we're seeing the new Dishonored. It's going to be out uh, this fall. So th- that's... Oh, man. You yeah. can add that, I guess. I mean, it's not old, clearly. It's not an yeah, older game, but... But it's It's still a cool property. That, yeah, it is an heir to thief. You know, that makes sense. So. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's not old, but at the same time, like, boy, is it... Is it boy, is of, it thief. Like, not... Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's definitely not, like, shy, and it's, like, shout-outs to old Looking Glass games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so our next email is anonymous. <laughs> Hi, Weekenders. I've lived in a bunch of countries, and as a side effect of growing up under sanctions, I never saw games advertised outside extremely limited and local enthusiast press, which was largely cut off the global stream. Hmm. 
Work frequently sends me to San Francisco, Los Angeles uh, from Europe. The sales and commercial uh, wash that E3, GDC, and the culture in general has uh, leaves me running back to my hotel room and getting some silence. Also, my enjoyment of games is uh, washed in the the pushed perception of it, which means exposure puts me off of titles. Do you ever see this, or is this just my outsider's view? I think I, I think you're certainly not alone in that view. Uh, I get, <laughs> yeah, I'm an overly enthusiastic person who is guilty of of you know going a little bananas and jumping up and down and getting excited about stuff, but it wears on me. As well, you know, the, the sort of hype cycle is, is very, very exhausting. I mean, especially if you if you work in it, you know, I think I'm very, very, very lucky to uh, do the job that I do. But it can be a little exhausting at times just being like, OK, well, it's hype time, hype time. Get get on the hype train. You know, uh, let's let's see the 10 commercials. Let's overanalyze the five trailers. Let's talk about the data points of how many mm-hmm. guns are in X, Y and Z. And it's. You know, we're, we've, thank God, kind of turned the corner from the how many guns are in X, Y, and Z sort of stuff that, you know, a few years ago, that was that was what you did if you were a game journalist. You wrote up those press releases. Um, that was a thing. Uh, it's a little less uh, focused on that now, but no less focused on sort of the, the hype train and, and, you know, having to get excited uh, about, uh, you know, certain games and having to sort of join the conversation about certain games, even if you kind of want to talk about other other stuff. That's why it's nice to have a podcast. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think you're alone at all in that. I think a lot of people get very overwhelmed, especially if you do go to events. Um, it's, it's truly exhausting. Uh, just, you know, I, I can run... 15 miles up mountains and be fine, but I am ready to die after like three hours on a show floor. Uh, it's just overstimulating and tiring and loud and, and truly exhausting. So yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, and certainly there is quite a bit in our culture, in gaming culture and in wider American culture um, that has to do with the hype cycle and sort of getting excited about things and getting really, really excited about commercial products to the point where part of your identity gets wrapped yeah. up in a commercial product. So, yeah, that's certainly a perspective that's that's useful uh, as well. I think sometimes I lose sight of the degree to which our society <laughs> or our culture is built on advertising. Sure. Uh, because like reading this email, I got to thinking about like, I mean, I have, I have, this, I have, a, I have a similar reaction at times, uh, but I think that's mostly just like a combination of physical exhaustion mm. and like uh, noise exhaustion, like fatigue from just being in the cacophonous, like uh, you know, reception halls and, and exhibition halls yeah. and that sort of thing. I fundamentally can kind of really enjoy a good hyped up ridiculous marketing experience right like i freaking loved watching like that sony press conference sure three like three years ago yeah Uh, that was just that was just an absolute blast but like reading this email i got to thinking about like i can't imagine how quieting and like liberating it would be to live in a place where every single public surface isn't covering advertising. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like unfathomable a, to us. No, just, like, just imagine living yeah. in a city where you can look down the street and you just see buildings and architecture and people yeah. and not like signs and not like, uh, and, and, and that like interests me as well because like to an extent, like at like advertising is, uh, you know, is kind of a, form of propaganda as well, right? It's, sure. just, it's, it's this propaganda that we, we submit ourselves to. 
Uh, we, we are a society that sort of self-propagandizes. Yes. Uh, we, we create our ideal life in these, in these images and these, in these, in these ads. Uh, and, and then we sort of uh, give ourselves permission to chase it. Uh, on some level, and sort of craft our identity around around that that ideal, and the thought of growing up in a like in a landscape that's kind of devoid of that, or at least like severely curtails that, um, is very mysterious, but also very enticing to me. Sure, uh, because I, I definitely feel like at times we have, you know, we we like we all sort of smirk right about like how uh, you know in certain like. Um, like East Bloc countries, right? Like there'd be like radios you couldn't turn off or something. Everyone have to assemble to like listen to the premier's speech or something. Yeah. Like ha ha ha, you know the, these the you know the, how how sad to not live in a free society and have to go, go you know go through all this rigmarole. Uh, but at the same time, we do live we we do live in a society where like we absolutely can't actually get silence. We can't actually like we can't actually escape um, like mass market uh, like agitprop. Uh, messages. Totally, yeah. uh, ours are just different flavored. Yeah, absolutely. And this, it's it's funny. You know, we talked about this earlier in the episode, but that that's exactly the sort of thing that drives me to want to, you know, on on bad days, uh, just be like, well, fuck all this. I'm gonna go be an EMT in Yosemite National Park and just go deal with people yeah. and their broken legs. And I can't deal with I can't deal with living in the modern world right now. Goodbye. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very real fantasy for me sometimes. So. Um, yeah, Firewatch. That's that's why it all worked. And yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Our last email comes to us from Kyle. Kyle writes, in a recent episode, Danielle mentioned about how escapist entertainment could be a crutch for engaging with the world around you. This got me thinking about how games could be emotional crutches versus emotional help. I just finished my second year of college, uh, but one of my best friends just graduated. In the weeks before the end of the year, she got really into Assassin's Creed Syndicate, and I ended up watching her play a large portion of the game. I really enjoyed just spending time with her and us remarking on Syndicate, and then she graduated. I was really missing her and decided to go back to my own copy of Syndicate as a way of feeling closer to her in those memories. I played through some of it earlier in the year, but the story didn't grab me, and a lot of the mindless side quests turned me off uh, because of how time-wasty they felt. But now everything felt imbued with meaning. Every little quest and interaction both reminded me of my friend, but also numbed my feelings of sadness and missing her. From a detached perspective, Syndicate's quests are pretty poorly designed, in my opinion, and all of the side quests feel the same. But I played hours of that game in the past few weeks regardless. I can't tell if it helped me cope, if, that was emotionally, if it was emotionally healthy, or if it was just numbing. Have either of you had experiences like this? Do you think using games like this is emotionally hindering or helpful? Are there any games that took on new importance because of the people in your lives? Wow, there's, there's a lot there. Um, I, this email really kind of hit me in a place where I live uh, because, yes, I often will use games as sort of a way of coping with a difficult time in my life. Um, and also... I used to get very depressed at the very end of every year in college. I, I just went through a super, super bad depression every single year. And I had sort of a miniature version of that at the end of every fall semester, but it, it was near, never as bad. Just the end of the year, like springtime, I would just get so sad and feel so yeah, kind of hopeless, which, you know, sounds a little weird, but... Um, 
yeah, I guess it was sort of myself figuring out my, my psychology, like I just need to be real busy and times where I feel like things are ending and I won't be busy are bad for me. So there you go. Maybe, uh, maybe some of that could be helpful for you. Kyle, uh, having things can be a very, very good thing. And I don't think, I don't think it's a bad thing to use games as uh, a way of helping you through a difficult time. Missing your friend, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing uh, to kind of go back and, and play something that gives you some comfort. I think uh, what I've struggled with and what I was talking about in that episode was more uh, when you sort of cross the line into, I'm doing this instead of X, Y, and Z that I would otherwise enjoy and would feel healthy. Like if, if you know, you couldn't ever stop playing and you felt like you would just die if you stopped playing. Something like that, I think, is where, you know, things kind of uh, cross from from something that's a, a, a coping mechanism, you know, something that's helpful for you and healthy for you into something that becomes an obsession or it becomes kind of a, a complete crutch. And I think for everybody, you know, that line is going to be a little different for everybody. And you kind of figure this stuff out uh, as you grow up. And, you know, if you have any mental health issues, if you talk to a therapist or you talk to a professional about them, they can kind of help you find where that line is potentially. Um, but, yeah, I think that line kind of exists for everybody. I, I remember there are a few games that I've used in, like, really, really tough times. Um, I went through a breakup when I was 16 and I didn't sleep for more than like an hour for two weeks. And I played a lot of Perfect Dark <laughs> in that time, the original Perfect Dark on the mm -hmm. Nintendo 64 and really loved it. And man, I have some weird associations with that game because of that. I was hallucinating because I wasn't sleeping uh, and oh, it was bad. It was really bad. I, I was very, I was a very heartbroken little baby Danielle. And uh, yep, it helped me. It really helped me kind of like, at least have something to put my brain into and do things. And it was a thing that I could do. It was like a helping hand sort of in that time of need. I have a few more, but sorry, I feel like I'm rambling. Please, Rob, <laughs> your, no, your I, thoughts. Yeah. You know, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm reading this and what it, I guess sort of catches my eye is that uh, the the spe like the specialness, the magic of yeah. this game has kind of been lost in the absence of this person, and I think I have two reactions to this. Right, like on on, on the one hand, sometimes that makes uh, absences feel worse because sure. it's like you realize like those things you enjoyed together aren't. Uh, you can't you can't enjoy them the same you know you can't enjoy yeah. them the same way and it sort of makes that it, it feeds that whole like uh, you know the food doesn't taste as good yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. the colors aren't as bright and all that uh, on the other hand uh, on like having had that experience but then being on the other side of a lot of absences um, and looking at them with a little more distance I increasingly regard that feeling sometimes as a little bit. Uh, healthy because something that will happen a lot is you'll return to something and you will realize that it doesn't feel special anymore mm. um, and it's not as magical or maybe it isn't as good as it seemed or not as deep or perceptive or exciting and in a weird shitty way that's also maybe a way of coming to terms with someone else's absence sure because I think sometimes that helps you. It sort of brings you back down to earth. 
It makes um, it real with, in some ways, maybe. Yeah, like because it turn because I I think it's it, those those are moments that can kind of uh, pierce the rose tinted glasses, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, at first you're like, oh, no, this isn't a special about this person. Uh, the the moment's been lost. The magic's been lost. This like it's not as good as it was. With more time and distance, sometimes you also start realizing that maybe the entire memory is a little more suspect than you thought, right? And that's yeah. and, and that sounds really shitty and like cruel, right? Because it's a way of like shrinking someone's role in your life or the mental real estate devoted to them. Uh, but it's kind of healthy at the same time, right? That you start to realize, like, oh man, like. You know the games we played together weren't as good as the, I thought. Uh, the movies we liked, you know, were kind of shittier than I thought. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The music we were listening to those years uh, wasn't quite as good. Doesn't hold up. And maybe if I was wrong about that shit, what else was I wrong about? Yeah. And actually, that can be very helpful. <laughs> that can be a very helpful question to to ask, uh, depending on the nature of uh, of the loss, right? But yeah. in, in general, like I, I like. I think this is something I've gone through on a number of levels, and I, I think both perspectives are valid. And unfortunately, I think also inevitably you will you will encounter both perspectives. <laughs> it's, just, it's a matter of of where you're at. Yeah. Um, but I always return to uh, a, a quote near the end of <laughs> near the end of Strange Days, <laughs> uh, when one character turns to the other and says, "You know, memories are supposed to fade," and. You know, that whole movie is kind of about the, the perils of, of hanging on to ones to the point where they become dangerous. And I'm, I'm sort of at peace now with that, with the process of the fade. Yeah, it's a very Buddhist view. I kind of, I dig that. <laughs> that's good stuff. All right, so I, that's it for our weekend correspondence. Let us now move into weekend projects. Rob, are you watching, reading, listening to anything especially special right now so i just read a pretty fun book that i guess i would like call like <laughs> arab witcher or something like sure, that sure sure uh, it was a book <laughs> called uh, throne of the crescent moon uh by saladin uh ahmed okay i'm mostly familiar with uh w- with with ahmed's work uh via via twitter actually he's become sure. sort of a twitter celebrity <laughs> uh commenting on matters of writing and sci-fi and uh islam and islamophobia nice. uh but throwing the crescent moon is actually just a really good genre fantasy story uh from but the difference is it is informed by uh like you know, Middle Eastern culture and Middle Eastern like storytelling traditions, hmm. uh, and not so much like Tolkien, uh, for instance. So, like the entire thing is, um, it's sort of like imagine, imagine like uh, a, a a a fat old Geralt, um, <laughs> sort of on one last mission, uh, and and that's kind of where it where it departs from. Uh, but it's but it's really really cool because it, it it is very very Witcher. It's all like to an extent like a a monster hunting procedural. Nice. <laughs> but yeah. what makes it feel really different is that uh, the character the stock characters that show up aren't the ones we're used to from like sort of Western focused fantasy. Uh, it's it's more like 
you know, the the savage girl from the desert tribes and the uh, the dervish who's sort of coming to grips with, you know, weighing his fate, uh, weigh, weighing his faith <laughs> uh, versus like sort of human desire and attachment. It really just works. It's 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 beautifully written. Uh, there's a great sense of humor and uh, a lot of of high quality adventure. Uh, it's just it's it's a damn good fantasy story. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so down for that. That sounds pretty rad. I have been, uh, at least last night, I watched Team Foxcatcher. Uh, This is a Netflix documentary, uh, pretty recent. I'm under the impression it it went up, uh, you know, at least within the last month or so on Netflix. I could be wrong, but I think it's pretty recent. Uh, It is a, you know, a a, a straight-up documentary about... Sort of the subject matter of Foxcatcher, the movie that came out, I don't know, two years ago, maybe, with Steve Carell. Uh, Steve Carell and uh, Channing Tatum. It is about a you know, real-life story. The movie was about the real-life story uh, of uh, John DuPont, a really rich, eccentric like millionaire. DuPont, like DuPont. The, the chemical. Yes, exactly. Okay. He's an incredibly rich guy who has this massive, massive estate in Pennsylvania. And he hosts a, a bunch of sort of Olympic athletes. He, he hosted a whole bunch of like swimmers and triathletes and pentathletes and, and all sorts of folks. Um, basically just houses them and, and kind of had a place for them uh, to live and train and, and, and earn money uh, because he had this interest in sort of developing these sports in America. And in the late 80s, he started uh, a wrestling team. Uh, and the, and it's about this guy, Dave Schultz, who is this really charismatic wrestler, really, really incredibly uh, talented. And, and I'm talking about Greco-Roman, you know, like Olympic yeah. wrestling, not pro wrestling with, the you know, yeah. the goofiness, like the actual sport of wrestling. Right. The guy um, wasn't like running a luchador. Right. Like, series <laughs> on okay, yeah. yeah, not that at all. Big singlets and really muscular little yeah. guys with cauliflower ear. Um, or not little, but every every size of, of very muscular men with, with cauliflower ear, basically. <laughs> um so in, in, in this is from the late '80s and sort of the early '90s. Um, uh, this man, you know, John Dupont, sort of hosted this this team of wrestlers, um, and the movie was a dramatic, you know, the, a dramatic account of what happened. And this documentary uh, was the, you know, sort of the real story, so to speak. Okay. Um, so Dave Schultz, charismatic guy, he and his sort of wrestler buddies, they all live on this giant estate of this eccentric millionaire, maybe billionaire. Um, and John DuPont, who, who puts up so much money and was thought of as, you know, this great philanthropist, was very, very clearly, very mentally ill, uh, had, I don't know what, it's not really disclosed in the documentary, but it sounds like he was a paranoid schizophrenic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had tons of guns and liked to shoot things and thought he saw things in the woods and would shoot at them and, and, and things like that. And then would get paranoid that, you know, his friends and family were spying on him or were, you know, going through the walls and just a lot of really red, you know, red flags and warning signals that like, Hey, this guy probably needs help. Uh, he was very, very friendly with the police in the town because he had their firing range. He invited them to come hunting with him on his estate and, you know, hosted them at their at their firing range and all this other stuff. So um, he became increasingly less stable and, you know, people kind of looked away. And he ended up murdering Dave Schultz, the his sort of star wrestler, uh, just it's never really clear why he did it. He just clearly thought that he was up to no good or wanted right. to kill him or something. 
Um, and you know, it's just, it's just a really sad story of, oh, well, the weirdo millionaire, well, he's, he's doing a good thing for the sport. So everybody kind of looked away and a lot of very, very questionable behavior and very, very sad. Honestly, he was very clearly mentally ill. He wasn't, you know, it, it didn't sound to me like this guy was a sociopath. It sounded to me like he needed help. He needed medication. He needed mental help. Um, just a really sad and really, really well put together, very, very expertly put together documentary. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, when when a documentary is great, you know, we talk about sort of the quality of the storytelling and the editing. We don't necessarily talk about cinematography and, and writing and stuff like that, you know. So it's yeah. always kind of a, a different thing to talk about. But I was really impressed by it. I was really sort of enthralled. So was the movie is was the movie good as well? I didn't see the movie. Okay. I I read about it extensively. I was very interested in the movie, but because it's not on Netflix, I I couldn't so, actually watch it. This, um, <laughs> like, so is it the case where like um uh, the Schultz character was yeah. he like sort of like did he get the did did he get a sense that like things were not right? He did, and tried to maybe sound the alarm or or get out or it, it's sort of. It, insinuated that he kind of stayed on because it was going to be kind of his last run at the Olympics. He was like 37 when this happened and he befriended John and was like, you know, tried to sort of soothe him. And the sense was such that he didn't know how serious it was. He knew something was wrong, but he kind of thought, Oh, he's just eccentric. He's, he's just kind of weird. He didn't have a great childhood, you know, that kind of thing. He, he, he was sort of um, depicted as being a very good friend to John. The, you know, yeah. like close, you know, they had the family over at holidays and, and stuff like that. That he was a very close friend and he was the one who could speak a little more honestly to John because he felt so close to him. And right. maybe that's why he was targeted. Um, and he was the person who, who got killed, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Uh, even though threats had definitely been made to kill other people and other people had even been, you know, Threatened with a gun and, and you know, pretty extreme stuff uh, had happened. So, you know, it's, it's at once, you know, a pretty, it, it seems like a, a, a responsibly, factually uh, put together documentary. And also, like, clearly a story about, hey, just because somebody has money doesn't mean you shouldn't, <laughs> you know, I, you shouldn't look away when things get pretty, pretty fucked up. Uh, even if they're yeah. really good for the sport. That was the whole thing. Everybody kind of in the, the wrestling community said, oh, he's so good for the sport. He's supporting our sport. We've always been kind well, of number every, two. That's, and that's yeah. Every niche uh, sport, though, right? Yes. I mean, I, to a style, you see this in microcosm and esports. Oh, all, sure. All the time. It's like bad people are kind like bad people who are viewed as somehow like in like integral to a sport's future yes. or like are, are at least in your corner and will promote it someday. Like, Oh yeah. They, they get away with, with a ton because people just don't like, nobody wants to hear like, Hey, the guy who is one of the only people bringing money into the scene, uh, is, 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 is shady or yeah. he's no or good. Did or did something real bad. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It, it made me think quite a bit about sort of the UFC right now. And, uh, yeah. I'm not at all saying Dana White equals John DuPont. I'm not saying he's a, a paranoid person with a gun who will kill people. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying that, but it is making me think, you know, the UFC kind of gets away with murder. Uh, they can treat their athletes pretty badly. They recently had a whole scandal where they threw a, a reporter out for yeah, I saw that. leaking something that was news. I mean, it's like yeah. he's but, a reporter's but, but, allowed but they to do this. Their chance to promote their promote their bullshit way, right? Yeah. It, it's really ridiculous thing about Brock Lesnar coming back to UFC or, or whatever. It doesn't even matter what it was. It was just really shitty yeah. that they threw out a reporter for reporting. Complete crap. Um, you know because. It's making MMA into this, you know, really 
popular, fast-growing sport, you know, across the world. There's a lot of countries that are super into MMA now uh, because of the UFC. So people are, are turning, you know, they're turning away from some of that really shitty behavior, and it sucks. Like, it, you know, Dana White is is getting to act like a toddler, basically. Uh, and yeah. that's not great, and that's probably not great for the sport as a whole, you know, ever, even if it's great for the, you know, sort of short term. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 just making me think about like, hey, yeah, sports are not. Uh, God, there's just so much so much to say about it. But but yeah, yeah, it just kind of made that parallel with me a little tiny bit as well. So really awesome documentary. Totally recommend that whether or not you uh, are super into Channing Tatum in his little wrestling outfit and you enjoyed that movie or yeah. not. So <laughs> awesome. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show, please do rate us on iTunes and please tell a friend, tell an acquaintance, tell whoever you get your food from in the evening. Uh, just tell them about it. Tell them about our podcast if you think they'll enjoy it. It means so, so much to us. Uh, word of mouth is really how we grow at all and we appreciate it from now until the end of time. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Perfect. Awesome. That was smooth. <laughs> like a fine, delicious single malt.